This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Cole Foster, and I'm going to do the scripture reading for this morning, which comes from Matthew 6, 5 through 15. That can be found on page 811 of your pew Bible. Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. If I've met, my name is Chris. I'm really thankful that you're here. Let me just pray for us and then uh, jump in this passage. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us this text Thanks for teaching us how to pray, how to relate to the Father, how to engage the Spirit, how to apply the truth of what you've done for us on the cross when it comes to forgiveness and grace. So I just ask now that you would open up our hearts in ways that we can receive. Um, Help us, I ask. We're carrying lots of things in our hearts. There's lots of burdens. There's lots of um, needs that we have. There's lots of daily bread and lots of places where we've trespassed and lots of places where we feel evil all around us. So, so would you help now, even in this moment? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, if you're new with us, let me just orient you real fast. We've been in a larger series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we've taken a couple of weeks just to slow down in this passage to talk about the need for prayers. We talked about why pray and then how to pray, and this week we're going to focus in on what to pray. And it's interesting that in the middle of this sermon, the center of that, and the center of this center section of these things he's telling us not to do, you find this exhortation to pray. Jesus actually gives this phrase several other places. We see it in Luke 11 as well. So you would imagine for three years as Jesus is with his disciples, he would have taught them to pray multiple times in multiple different ways. And so it's not so much like the only thing you can pray or a rigid rule of what you should pray, but it's an invitation for us to see the heart of God. It expands what we normally would pray about. It gives us some rails to run on, and it helps us actually engage the heart of God himself. And so his disciples are asking, how do we pray in Luke 11? And in this section, Jesus is just explaining what it means to actually relate to God. So what I want to do in in large part is just walk through the text and just highlight what's there. Kids, it's the kind of thing that you can just read and pray back to God real simply. So we don't have to make it more complicated than it really is. Or you can just read those phrases pray those exact same words back to God. And if you walk with Jesus for like 90 years, which some of our members have done, you can still pray into these things, a kind of depth that's really 
really beautiful. So I don't want to overcomplicate it, but I do want to just orient us a little bit as we start. Then we'll walk through the text, and then we'll make just a couple of closing exhortations. Let me just give you three things as we start. One from the context of this passage. So remember the Sermon on the Mount is aimed at what does it mean to really live in the kingdom of God? And Jesus has been saying from the very, very beginning, it's different than you think. You've thought it was all these external things, and if you did all the right things on the outside, then God would be pleased with you. And that's not what the Old Testament said, but that's how we had twisted some things around. And so Jesus comes to declare the kingdom has come, and it's a kingdom that comes from the inside out, not the outside So he says the kingdom is coming for those who are poor in spirit, for those who are meek, for those who know they have need. It's not for the strong. It's not for the competent. It's not for those who are amazing. It's for all of us, every human who's ever been born who has these broken needs in their heart. And then he says this whole section of like, and you've heard it say, don't murder, but I'm telling you it's deeper than that. Not just externally, don't kill somebody. Let's talk about what's happening on the inside when it comes to hatred or insults. And so he takes the law from the outside and he puts it on the inside, not as a newer and heavier law that you could never ever keep, but as something that's actually more beautiful. He's inviting us into a kingdom relationship. So that's what he's been doing even in this section where he's saying, hey, be careful of how you practice your righteousness when it comes to giving and to praying and next week in fasting. You're not doing that outwardly for the people. Remember, it's about your heart. And he's been talking about prayer and he's given us two kind of correctives. Hey, don't pray to impress other people, and then don't pray to try to manipulate God either. Remember, he's your father. This is a relational thing as you engage with him. So that's where he's been taking us. So as we start working through the Lord's Prayer, it's important to stop and say, we're not now changing the rules and giving a template of, if you do this, then God is pleased with you. Let's keep it consistent. What he's actually been saying is, hey, as you're being transformed from the inside out, these are the kinds of things that begin to change your heart. So these are prayers that we pray that match a heart that's being transformed, which I think is the best way to make best sense of verses 14 and 15. It should jar you a little bit. We've read it for the last three weeks, right? If you will forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you won't forgive them their trespasses, then neither will your Heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. And you should stop and try to connect some dots about justification by faith alone and Christ alone and what he's done for us. This says, though, that there's something that matches my heart on the inside and my experience on the outside. Jesus is simply saying, hey, this is real. You can't just pray some stuff and do some rules and follow some phrases. This is from the inside out. And if you are not willing to forgive your brothers and sisters from the inside out, then your insides have not been changed. So the context helps us just go, he's pushing this down, not to like hold us into a higher standard, but to bring us into something that's more beautiful than we could imagine to say, God is after our hearts and the Lord's prayer directs our hearts. So that's really, really helpful. So the context of the Sermon on the Mount about what does it mean to live in the kingdom from our hearts is rooted in this context. It's not for show on the outside. I'm trying to manage and manipulate God. And this is not just stuff that we do. It's not words we say. It's actually changing us because Christ has really forgiven us. Therefore, we must forgive other people. And when there's a dissonant from our outward behavior and our inner heart, right, there's a mechanism for repentance. But he's saying you can't just live two different lives. There has to be this integration of your faith and, and your life, which we are leaning into by faith through grace because of what Christ has done. But it's, but it's real, So we tend to take a passage like that and say, he can't mean that. No, he actually means that. He means that this salvation by grace alone really does change your heart. It really does affect you from the inside out, which is really great news. 
It's actually a liberating message to you. It's not a new law that's going to crush you. It's a liberating message of the way the kingdom of God is advancing. So that, that's from the context. Secondly, I want to just kind of orient us here. These are things that you will grow in over time. You'll never grow past these categories, but you will continue to grow in them. So again, kids, you could just read these phrases and pray these back verbatim and let them direct your heart to God. And you can also sit in every single word of this prayer and stretch that out for a really, really long time. So think about the way a color wheel functions. You've got some primary colors, right? You've got reds and blues and yellows, and then you combine some. You've got some greens and some oranges and some purples. So you've got maybe six or so primary colors and secondary colors. But if you were to add white and dark, what you'll actually see is a a long expansion of those kinds of colors. And so as many colors as there are on a color wheel, maybe we conceptualize that as a prayer thing, to say our prayers will be varied, they'll grow, there'll be layers to them as we apply them to our specific situations. So this is not meant to be like a limiting thing. It's meant to be a way to help us go forward and like to have this spring into what is actually matching our heart that we're crying out to God with. Right? So it's not, it's not a limiting thing, but it actually helps us move forward. I want to just say that. Uh, you start here real simply But you never actually get past these categories because the third thing I want to say is these categories are not just items you pray, they direct your heart. Jesus is actually teaching us what's important to him. And they they do match what's important to you, right? Reconciliation of relationships, your your daily needs. I just think about temptation, the stuff that's coming at you. That is what you're concerned about. It is what you're wrestling with. But Jesus is saying because it matters to God and because it matters to you, it should shape your prayers. And the way he teaches us to pray isn't just content. It shapes the contour of our hearts. It actually affects our hearts. When we pray your will be done, your kingdom come, it changes us. Now, not if we're just giving rote little laws and rules and we're following a script, but if we're really engaging with our hearts the way Jesus is calling us to, then to pray, your name be holy, actually impacts the way I think about God and it changes my life. So, so the context gets us at the heart. These are the kind of things that start in our heart and they expand throughout our lives. And as we engage the instruction of these, they actually begin to change us from the inside out, which is really, really fun. So, so I wanted to walk through this prayer like in seven pieces. And scholars debate how many actually um, things there are in this prayer, how many deals should we be praying. It ranges normally from five to eight, depending on if you say your kingdom come and your will be done are one thing, or whether you talk about God being in heaven and his name be hallowed as, as one thing or introduction. Hey, I, it doesn't matter. P- pray all of it, right? If you want to do a light blue and a dark blue and break up a section, keep praying all the way into it. I don't really care how many phrases you put in this, but I'm going to use seven just to anchor us because the point of this is not even the how, but like the what of what we're praying and asking for those things to begin to shape us. All right, so look with me now in verse nine. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Some say this is an introduction, but I think it should actually be our anchor and our root into the prayer. There's two pieces of this, right? He's talking about the intimacy of God and the otherness of God. He teaches us to start by praying and says the most important thing is who you're actually praying to. Before we get to content, let's talk about the one that you're actually praying to. Dallas Willard writes this, The address part of this prayer is of vital significance. We dare not slight or overlook it. 
It, it is one of the things that distinguishes prayer from worrying out loud or even worrying silently, which many of us are, are tempted to do and actually call that prayer. Speaking to God directly is different than talking about him. Noting our relationship to him and his relationship to the universe is what we see in the Our Father and in the heavens. Jesus says, as you begin to pray, remember who God is and how he relates to you. It's a nearness of Father and a farness of the one who rules the heaven. There's an eminence and a transcendence. There's an intimacy and an otherness. And he's really asking us to start by praying about identity. First, our identity as daughters and sons of God. How much it would change how you prayed to God to believe that he loved you, that he accepted you, that he delighted in you, that that he actually wanted to hear your prayers. To start with this idea of I'm coming to God as a Christian who's been reconciled to God because of what Christ has done. I've been adopted into his family. I'm coming as a child that the Father actually delights to listen to. We said several weeks ago that your view of God shapes how you pray. And so Jesus just says, hey, see him as your father. And it's about your identity as his child. And then it goes to his identity as the one who rules the universe, right? So you have the ruling of the universe and this intimate relationship at the beginning of this prayer. He says, man, would you begin praying, realizing the one that you're praying to rules the heavens and he is available to you, right? right? Your identity is shaped around that. It actually is formed that way. J.I. Packer says, if you want to know how well somebody understands Christianity, ask them to talk about God being their father. And the more they understand that, the more they understand really what the essence of the faith really is, because it's through what Christ has done that we become adopted children of God. To see him not as somebody that we're trying to please through our outward behavior, someone that we're trying to appease by doing religious works, but one who's already come to us, he's chosen us, he's loved us, he's accepted us, and we relate to him as children that are rested in the Father's presence. So John 1.12 says, Yet to all who believed, regardless of their religious background, regardless of of all the pain and the shame and the, the harm, all the stuff that's happened in the past, to all who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. Here's what I want to do. I want to take a risk this morning. I think we're going to have time for it. If we run out of time, we'll just fast track this. I think we should actually pray these things as we go through them. So as we actually say, hey, we should be praying this, not just go, cool, do that later. Let's just go ahead and do it like now. So the first thing he says is to pray that he's your father. This is an intimate thing, asking God to communicate to you in a tender way through your relationship and that he is in the heavens. It's a prayer for for your connection to him and his rule of the universe, right? So would you just close your eyes for a second where you are? I'm just going to give you like 30 seconds. It'll be quick. But I think it'll be instructive for us to hear these things and then to go ahead and try to pray them back to God. Would you just simply pray these two realities? God, thanks for making me your child and thanks that you rule the heavens. And if your heart takes you to some other places, go ahead and pray that. But let's pray for just a moment before we move on.
Father, we worship you for the intimacy that we have because of what Christ has done, and you're near to us by your spirit. And we worship you because of your bigness, that you rule the heavens. You're powerful and mighty. You're strong. We say thank you for that reality, that we can know you and that you rule. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, second phrase then is this phrase, hallowed be your name. That that word hallowed simply means holy or set apart. We see the same word in passages like John 17, 17, praying that, that we would be set apart and holy. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, you see the same word. It's a, it's a thing of, of setting apart something as holy and valuable. Now, it's not a prayer that God would become that, that God would become holy, but that we would see him as holy. So Dallas Wood writes this to says it really is the idea that the name should be treasured and loved more than any other, held in absolute unique position among humanity. This request is based upon the deepest need of the human world. Human life is not about human life. Nothing will do it right until the greatness of God and the goodness of God is the source and the governor of all that we grasp in reality. His very name is then held in the highest possible regard. And until this is so, until humans see God as the ruler of the universe and see him as holy and separate and other, then the human compass will always be pointed in the wrong direction. And individual lives as well as history as a whole will suffer from constant and fluctuating disorientation. And then he says, candidly, this is exactly the condition that we find ourselves in. It's a prayer that we would actually see God as God, that we would see him as the one who rules the universe, that we would see him as holy, and to call his name holy, right? The name represents the person. So when you say of someone that you drug their name through the mud, you don't mean the letters on their birth certificate. You mean, you mean them, their character, how you see and esteem that person. Jesus is saying that we should pray that our hearts, right? Remember, it's directing our hearts, that our hearts see God as the biggest reality in the universe. For your name to be hallowed even in my life and in the life of those around me is to see God for, for who he really is and then to respond to him as such. Right? It's a call to obedience. It's a call to bow our knee. It's a call to reorient our hearts away from us wanting to be our own king to him being the king. So, so let's just do it again. Let's just take 30 seconds. And would you just pray in your own heart that God himself would be hallowed, that he would be seen as holy and different and set apart, that he would be seen as one who's not just your buddy. He's holy other. So when he commands something, he's not just giving you like an idea you could take or leave. He's not your Pilates coach that you could like listen to or not. He's not a guru that you pay to help you at work. He's the very God of the universe. But we often don't see him like that. We see him as someone who's helping us along our own um, journey of our own actualization of our own identity building exercises. And so Jesus just says, hey, stop for a second. He's intimately connected to you as your father. He rules the heavens and you need to see him and the world needs to see him for who he really is. So take just a moment, take 30 seconds, and would you just pray that, that you would see God for who he is? And that you would respond to him as holy and separate and beautiful and powerful and sovereign, the king of the universe, right? It's a prayer that we would respond to him as king rather than to be king ourselves. Just pray that for 30 seconds.
God, align our hearts with what is real. Help us to live into reality of who you are. Shatter the illusion of our own little kingdoms and help us joyfully come towards you. And thanks that you came towards us, that King Jesus came to reconcile us is really, really beautiful. So we worship you and ask that you would direct our hearts. Direct our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so down to verse 10 now. He says this, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, I want you to notice a couple things. He does not nuance this very much, which we would love to nuance this. What about God's like secret will and his permissive will and his ordained will? And what will are we praying into? And isn't God sovereign in control of the entire universe? So what effects do our prayers actually have? And if God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, do our prayers even matter? We get stuck in those loops. I think there's a lot of value in wrestling with those questions. But those are tensions that the scripture give to us, declaring both God is sovereign and in control of the entire universe, and your prayers really matter. And there's something instructive about the way Jesus just puts us in front of us, like, hey, don't try to solve the riddle in your prayers, because that might actually keep you from praying. Remember, debating with God or thinking through or arguing or trying to understand might be different, actually, than you just simply going, God, would you make your will happen? There's so much injustice in the world. I believe that you're good. I believe that you're holy. I believe that you're our Father, and yet the world does not match that. Would you please come and bring your kingdom in to rule and reign in our world, right? Jesus doesn't nuance it. He, he it just calls us to engage it. And so maybe I'm speaking to Christians who've been in church for a really long time, and you've got lots of really specific teaching about the sovereignty of God, and maybe those depths of teaching have actually muted your prayers, Maybe you've gotten confused even on, like, well, if God's in control of everything anyway, then what's the point of even praying? And you add some disappointment to that. You add some, you cried out for healing and it didn't happen. You asked for God to help your relationship and the divorce still took place. You've been praying for your kids for decades and you still don't see movement there. You asked God to protect you from evil at work and you lost your job. So those, those kinds of moments, right, those disappointments, the evil one comes and whispers in your ear, see, it doesn't matter Anyway, so I just want to name that as a tension because what Jesus does is just says, hey man, lean all the way in and pray for his kingdom to come, which means there is still more, which is great news. It gives permission to our groaning to say this world is not the way it's supposed to be, even though Christ has come and he has like brought his kingdom, he's inaugurated this new kingdom. It's not fully consummated. It's not all complete yet. There's still more, which actually directs our hope as well. So our prayers are rooted in the reality that God is powerful and mighty and sovereign and that your prayers still actually matter and there is a mystery here. So on one pole that's way too far is that God has everything set and we're just following out scripts he's given us and he is like organizing the universe like a play. That's way too far. The scriptures do not reflect that view of God's sovereignty and is working with mankind. Nor, on the other side, is God just waiting for you to tell him what to do, and then he's going to act. Or he's not just wondering what you'd like him to do today, and from that space, he might actually move towards you. Right? That does not match the scriptures. right? So those two poles are way too far. Jesus just says, hey, would you ask and pray that my will would be done? Into this mystery of God's sovereignty and our free will, what is really clear in scripture is that our prayers do actually matter. How they matter, why they matter, when they matter, what the effects of those things are, lots of mystery. But what Jesus just says is, bring your heart in and ask for the kingdom of God to come 
for righteousness and justice and mercy and peace, for those things to rain down the way Jesus said he came to set everything straight that was crooked and heal everything that was broken and to actually redeem and fully satisfy mankind and their sin to be forgiven and him to be reconciled to them in pure ways where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man are together. That's what we should be praying for. It's actually like a missionary prayer. God, would you advance your kingdom into dark places? It's a, a prayer that Christ would come back, that your, your kingdom would come fully in this world. But into that mystery, we are told simply to pray. So you're given permission to do that. And, and please, what I just want to say, friends, is don't let the mystery mute your prayers there. Bring, bring your full heart to God and just trust that he's good. What we see in scripture is that he answers and he responds. We also see there's things that he does not do because you do not pray. So, so like in John 16, Jesus says, Man, I long to actually gather you, but you wouldn't let me. I'm sorry, this is Matthew 23. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. That's pretty devastating. How I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing so God is responding to us in some ways. In James 5, we're told to pray for our sicknesses and that we would be healed. To come and bring those prayers, and God actually responds to that. In John 16, we see, he says, there's things I want to do, but you've not asked me to do them. So now just ask so that your joy could actually be full. You see throughout scriptures the mysterious dynamic at play that our prayers actually shape and affect history. Not in ways that twist God's arm, not in ways that actually subvert his sovereign power, but in ways that he is responding and in ways that are actually real. Okay, let me take a risk with an illustration. This illustration will break down massively, kind of like every illustration about us as finite beings trying to understand the mind and heart of God. We should just own that, right? This king, this hallowed one is so different than us, we will never actually wrap our mind around you should actually be comfortable with the idea of going like, dude, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this verse says I should share the gospel with everybody. This verse says no one can come unless he draws them. So I'm going to share the gospel with everybody, trusting that he's going to draw some people. And I'm just going to go, right? You should engage the mystery, right? He says he doesn't heal everybody. He also tells me to pray for healing. So, so I'm simply going to pray, right? So that, that how it all works, your, your finite brain, my finite brain, shouldn't actually expect to understand the sovereign God of the universe. I think that's important just for us to own as people. Okay, so now let me offend you with an illustration. I thought about my little dog. So I, I'm not saying that you're like a dog. I'm actually like the dog. Okay, so in this illustration, I have a little dog. Well, I have a real dog, not just for illustration purposes. Her name is Winnie. She's super cute. And we go on walks. Now, I also go on walks without Winnie. Sometimes I leave my house and go to a track or a park or a trail and meet somebody else. And so I don't always walk with the dog. But she knows like my walking shoes. She even knows like my walking clothes. She can hear the crinkle of the bag that we use because we're responsible neighbors so to pick up her remains. Or she knows all those sounds. And when she sees any of those signs, she starts freaking out. So she's wagging her tail and she's running around. She's scooting on the ground. She's ready to go for a walk. Now, because she does that, um, I'm not all of a sudden like, oh, I would not have taken you on a walk. Because you do that, now I will bring you along with me. But there are times where I wasn't planning on taking her on a walk, and her excitement and joy did catalyze more walks for her. Now, if I'm not going to take her, there's no amount of running around and barking and yelping and being cute that's going to make me actually take her. Right? She's not going to bend my will to her will, but she does go on more walks. 
than if she was just to lay in her bed lethargic and go like, cool, man, have a good walk. That she's actually excited about the walk means she goes on more walks. Okay, illustration breaks down a ton. I don't even know where you want to break it down. It breaks down a lot. But when we participate, we get to see more of the kingdom advance. I don't know how it all works. I don't know the mystery of it all. I don't know how the nature of it takes place. I don't know how you know the difference in the moment. In fact, oftentimes you don't. So you pray like crazy, believing that the merciful Heavenly Father wants to do you good and give you good gifts. He wants to bring justice. He wants to reconcile people. He wants to actually bless and heal and restore the way Jesus promised he was going to do. And until either through death or divine revelation, he tells you he's not going to do that, we should keep praying. Because we have examples in Scripture of people praying for like 40 years. Uh, whole communities praying for like 400 years. People with ailments for, for decades praying and asking God to meet them. And because, remember, our prayers are directing our hearts and they're shaping us. Part of the mystery even is what God is doing outside of us through the issues and the situations that we're in. So I simply want to say that mystery, we shouldn't get lost in that forest for the trees. We should stop and go, hey, I don't know how this works. I don't have to know how all of it works. I'm told Jesus, who's trustworthy and good and proved his love for me on the cross, says I should pray that Christ's kingdom would come, that the Father's kingdom would come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lots of verses that say he does respond, and there's verses that say he has this fixed will that no one is going to shake or move. Both of those are actually really comforting, and they give us permission and energy to pray hard, to pray bold, to pray humble, but to bring our whole heart to God and ask him to meet us there, right? So, so my dog does have an effect on what happens, not ultimately, but actually. Your prayers are not ultimate, which that's actually really good news because you pray some weird things. You pray some stuff that you shouldn't pray. You should pray. You pray as a finite human who doesn't know what God's doing on the globe. So it's nice that you don't cast a magic spell that God as a genie has to answer. That's actually really good news for you. So now you can trust that he is a father who's intimately connected to you. He rules the heavens and earth. He is holy. So the kingdom that you're asking him to bring about is actually good and beautiful, and Christ died to make it all possible. All right, so, so Jesus says in all of the mystery with no nuance, really, hey, would you just pray, God, would you make your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? So, so let's just pray that. Think about all the brokenness. Think about the places where you get to see redemption and healing. Think about people who don't know Jesus. Think about issues in our world, issues in your family, issues in your body. You just ask that God would bring his will, that the beauty of his kingdom would actually reign and rule in real ways on, on the earth, and that he would push back darkness in places where, where his rule and reign are not yet known and seen and experienced. So let's just take 30 seconds again. Would you just pray that? Pray verse 10. Father, would you bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen. Hey, the prayer now turns a little bit, almost like the way the Ten Commandments have a section that's aimed at God and then a section that's aimed at uh, our, our fellow man. We have these 
petitions to God, and now we go to our own hearts. And D.A. Carson writes this. He says, the first three petitions, though they focus on God's name and his kingdom and God's will, are nevertheless prayers that he may act in such a way that his people will hallow his name and submit to his reign and do his will. It's therefore impossible to pray these prayers sincerely without humbly committing ourselves to such a course. To ask God to do that is actually to ask him to change us from the inside out. From that space then, verse 11, we're told to pray that God would give us our daily bread. The, the needs that we have, right? This daily bread is symbolic of all of our needs. Later in Matthew in chapter 7, he's going to talk about food and clothing as kind of summary categories, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. In Timothy, we're told, if I have food and clothing, I can be content with that, right? These summary categories represent actually the essence of all of our needs, right? He cares about your physical, emotional, spiritual, and social needs. And he says, pray for them daily, right? right? The ones that are in front of you, the ones that are, are near. There's things that you're praying for long term, but you're also asking today, would you give me what I need? So, so when you're struggling with cancer, you're both praying for God to heal you of cancer, and you're praying for grace to get through the way it feels to have chemo today, when you're in your struggle with your marriage, you're praying for God to heal your marriage, and you're praying for wisdom today to know how to respond to the particular situation that you're in. When you're trying to parent, you're praying for God to reach your kids, to grow your kids, to change your kids, and you're praying for patience and for hope today. Right? He's saying, would you pray these daily breads, these moments of nearness, not just these huge long-term prayers, but those are actually formed from these individual daily prayers. So bring your particular need and the things that are large, right? Pray, pray the things that are huge kingdom-building needs in the world around us. You should be praying for Afghanistan. You should be praying for Haiti. Though you have no idea how to solve those problems. You should pray for those kinds of issues. And you should ask for God to give you a compassionate heart today for what actually you need in the moment to respond to those things and to the other things around you, right? He's saying, pray for your daily need, which maybe we could just whisper this into your ear as an encouragement. The evil one lies to you that you don't matter, and the evidence of your suffering is that God doesn't care. Jesus says, hey, would you pray for what you need? And if our prayers are actually shaping our hearts, there's something about asking God to meet our needs that's conforming our will and our hearts to his. He's telling you to pray for it because he wants to give it to you. We hit in chapter 7, like God's trustworthy. He's the kind of God that when we ask for bread, he doesn't give us stones that look like bread. He's not trying to trick you or mess with you. He is a good father who wants to give you what you need. And so we're told to come and bring our needs to him. And this daily bread is representative. So would you just take a moment now? Kids, I'd love for you just to pray. Like, What do you, what do you need most? What are you most worried about? What are the things that you long for? What are the things you feel unsteady about or insecure about? Would you just... Take a moment, ask God to meet you there and to give that to you, to meet your spiritual and physical, your relational and your emotional needs. Take a moment and ask God to, to meet those. So let's just pray again now for 30 seconds about our daily bread. God, would you give us what we need? And you know what we need. So we trust you. In the mystery of all of it, we trust you and ask for you to supply what we need.
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now go with me in verse 12. After praying for our needs, he goes to our biggest need, which is forgiveness of our sins. He says in verse 12, and we should pray this, and forgive us our debts, as we've also forgiven our debtors. I want to break those apart into two separate things. First, first asking for our own forgiveness. It's key here that we see there's actual confession even after the atonement has happened. So, so we should make a distinction here between Christians and non-Christians. Not non-Christians, what the scripture offers to you in Christianity, the good news of Jesus is that Christ died on the cross once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous, it says, to bring you to God. So the sacrifice of Jesus was enough and sufficient to forgive you of all of your sin, past, present, and future. The stuff that you're haunted by and the stuff that you don't even understand inside your heart. Therefore, you could never actually confess it. He died for all of that. He'd actually died before you confessed it as a way of finally saying, I've completed all that you needed. Even before you knew what you needed, I've already given it to you. So salvation by faith alone in Christ alone covers you your entire life. That's the good news of Christianity. It's not through law. It's not through you fixing yourself. It's not through you cleaning up your act. It's not through you getting better. It's through you trusting Jesus that your sins are forgiven. We sang so many times in the songs this morning about that beautiful reality, right? That is the message of Christianity. And yet, we continue to sin after we've been forgiven. We continue to struggle, right? The kingdom is not yet fully formed in our hearts. We still want to be our own king. We don't hollow Christ as king of the universe. We, we want to be uh, our own identity builders. We don't trust him to rule the universe. And so in those spaces, our sin comes out as we struggle. And in those spaces, what we're asking for in this moment for the Christian is not that I lost my salvation and I have to get reatoned for all of my sin. It's about relational renewal. It's about the restoration of fellowship. And it's also about the breaking of the power of that sin. To call it sin, to say it's a debt, to actually say this is significant, pulls it into the light and breaks the power of that thing. It's not a struggle. It's not a habit. It's sin. And and, and Romans says that the wages of our sin is death. The debt we owe from our sin is actually death. So what I'm toying with in sin is not just some things I want to get better at or stop trying if I can get around to it, or I might want to put some boundaries in place if they are convenient for me. He's saying, no, no, this is death to you. To actually go through the act of repentance is to pull it into the light and to break the power and the allure of those sins. It also restores fellowship. And not not that God didn't love you when you had sinned. He already provided for that. And Christ demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So even before you knew what to ask for, he'd already made provision. But there is this relational renewal that happens as you repent. And this just makes sense. It matches the rest of our relationships. You know what it's like to be in tension with somebody. They've hurt you or you've hurt them. And there hasn't yet been reconciliation and even the asking of forgiveness. And there's a huge difference between telling the data of what happened and coming and saying, I sinned against you, please forgive me. So when Adrian and I do counseling with couples all the time, man, we'll just often ask, have you had a chance yet to repent to each other? And sometimes we'll be like, uh, no, man, we're trying to work on communication. We're trying to work on our sex lives. We're trying to, trying to work on our budget. Yeah, you're right. But in the middle of all that, you have sinned against each other. Have you had a chance yet to stop holding that against each other and to be restored and Renewed. It's not a matter of, of atonement. It's not a matter of, of new forgiveness for you. It's a matter of reconciliation and restoring of fellowship. The same way when someone looks you in the face and says, I'm so sorry. 
What I did was selfish. What I did hurt you. I wasn't conscious of all of that, but I did willfully or even unwillfully. I just wasn't paying attention and I harmed you in what I did. Will you please forgive me? When they say that to you, and there's a warmth that comes. And, and just saying that doesn't make everything magically better, but it does draw you near to each other. So Jesus is instructing us when it comes to our relationship with God, live in the light. Break the power of these things by pulling them into the light and actually ask God to forgive you. Don't explain it away. Don't justify it. Don't call it a habit. Don't blame it on your parents. Own what happened to bring it into the light because it will break its power and it will restore fellowship with God himself. Right? We're not asking for atonement. We're asking for relational renewal and the gift of repentance to unburden yourself from the things you've been carrying, to step away from shame and sadness and fear and anger, all the stuff you've been layering on top of yourself as clothes, trying to cover all of your need, to take those things off the way Colossians says and put on what Christ has done for us, restores that relationship. And so Jesus, again, right, he's praying or telling us how to pray in ways that give us content to pray, but also shapes our hearts. It changes how we think about sin and what the debt is that we owe and how he has already provided that for us so so i think we'll just be consistent and take 30 seconds and go i mean would you just repent for a moment and realize you can't get through all the stuff but just ask for god to forgive you just own the fact that your heart drifts that you've wanted to be your own king you've not seen him as your father who gave you an identity you want to build your own identity you've not esteemed him as holy you thought you knew better and your kingdom is what you've been focused on and therefore you have sinned you've harmed you've committed um, indulgences, you've soothed, you've lashed out, you've buried things, you've held people in contempt, you've been bitter, you've done any number of things, would you just bring those and ask for his forgiveness? So I invite you now just to be renewed and restored in your relationship to the Father. Just, just take 30 seconds. Say, God, would you please forgive my debts? Father, thank you for your mercy that's made possible by the Son's sacrifice. We understand because the Spirit draws us. We are grateful for your kindness and your mercy and your forgiveness. Lift our shame, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the second half of this, after we've prayed for our sins to be forgiven, we now turn and live this out relationally with other people. And so we also ask that those who've sinned against us be forgiven, right? So forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we said in verse 14 and 15, right, he's going to say, hey, and if you won't do that, then you're not actually forgiven. Again, he's not saying that it's your forgiveness is contingent upon you doing the forgiveness thing for somebody else, but it is consistent. It's not contingent, but it is consistent for you to receive God's grace and to extend it is consistent in light of the gospel. For you to say you've received God's grace and refuse to extend that is not consistent. So would you have the heart of your father that moves towards those who've sinned against you, right? And there's one scholar said, there's no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. There's no serious prayer of forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. 
and to contradict the justification of faith that we say we've experienced by refusing to actually be reconciled to people is dissonant in our reality. Now, here's the great news. Where you've struggled to be forgiving, you can be forgiven for that. Where you've held bitterness and anger, even now in this moment, you can be forgiven for that. But Jesus will be really clear in Matthew 18 with the story of the merciful servant. Those who've been forgiven much must love much in return. And someone who understands the gravity of their debt being wiped away, it's inconsistent for them to make someone else in human form pay for the finite things they have done when the infinite things you have done have already been forgiven. Right? So it's this call to be reconciled to each other and to actually forgive. And there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. There's still boundaries. There's still issues to deal with. But our heart disposition should be to give to others the kind of forgiveness that we've received. So let's just take 30 seconds. Jesus is saying, hey, why don't you pray this? Would you just pray for that person or that situation where you've yet to forgive and ask God to help you forgive them? Imagine our heart, just go, God, I forgive this person. Would you just pray that for a moment? I'm smiling because this is like this thing that we're doing here, but it's real. You actually hear our prayers and you um, move towards us. So, so thank you for that. Even in a, a sermon like this with some checkpoints, these prayers matter and you're listening. Th- thank you for your mercy and your um, condescension to us and human, our human weakness. The way that you love us is, is amazing. Uh, finally here in verse 13, he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, not a whole lot of nuance here, right? So the debate of does God tempt or does he test and how does all that work? He doesn't even get into that. He just says, hey, would you just pray that God would protect you from evil, that he would lead you away from temptation? And remember, if our prayers are actually shaping our hearts, then for you to pray this is to make you aware of your patterns of temptation. To actually pray this is to ask God to shape your heart in such a way that you, you move away from evil and move back to the Father, right? It's not a passive thing. God, would you just do this? And until you do it, I'm going to keep sinning. And if you want me to stop looking at pornography, you want me to stop being angry, you want me to stop overspending, you want me to stop lashing out, then you'll change my heart. And until you do that, I'm just going to keep doing it. Like that is foolish and crazy. And it does not match the scriptures. What we see is begging God to change our hearts while we move towards what we know is true and right that he's ordained. That is out to destroy me, the scriptures say. So I'm not just scrolling the internet. I'm not just harboring a little bit of frustration and tension from college. I'm not just withholding warmness in this relationship. I'm not just overspending in this area. I'm not just leaving way to my anxiety. I'm not just throwing fire on the interwebs when I'm debating with somebody. I'm not just doing that. I'm actually engaging in evil. I'm actually engaging in evil that Jesus came to die for. And so, God, would you protect me from those patterns and the allure of the evil one that lies to me about my own identity, that lies to me about your goodness, that lies to me about what will help me and save me and therefore sets me up to be duped in and fall for every time this temptation. So would you be aware of the patterns of your own heart? Would you ask God to actually protect you? Would you be aware that you live in a real world with a real enemy? Friends, you can't indulge in the world nonstop and expect to have a heart that's united to God. You can't just like engage in whatever you want in the kingdom of this world 
and expect that your heart would be aligned with the kingdom of heaven. So he says, God, would you protect me? Would you help me? Would you lead me away from temptations? Because you're not foolish. There's a logic to what you're doing. Would you just stop and realize it's a broken kind of logic that's rooted in lies? And he actually offers me something different. So would you expose the patterns of temptation and help me see it as evil, not just habits, not just patterns, not just struggles, but evil, and so doing break its power so you move towards the heart of God. And ask for his help. You are dependent and vulnerable. You want to be so strong, but you're dependent and vulnerable. So would you pray that? So just pray now, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, would you help in that space? thanks that your word tells us that no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man so we're not alone and you've also provided a way of escape so thank you amen and then as we wrap up here then if that's the prayer let me just give you a few thoughts and then we'll take communion together first just get started with prayer so again kids i started it's super simple and you're like it's not very simple you've been talking for 47 minutes like it's not actually that simple if you're still talking right so would you just get started in small seed form step towards these phrases and just get going don't be intimidated by some of the language just ask god to meet you just get started and let the current of the holy spirit carry your heart to the father he loves you he wants to meet you he wants to help you Secondly, just allow yourself to grow. It's okay that it's awkward and hard as you're praying. We just have named that these last couple of weeks. Like, let yourself grow. That's a good thing. And because you're praying to your Father, you're not performing. You're not trying to impress. You're not trying to earn anything. You can wrestle with God in your prayers and ask for Him to meet you. Right. So get started. Grow. Join God in His kingdom advancement. These prayers are things that really matter to God. So join Him in what you're praying for. Ask him to help you fulfill what you're actually praying for. Ask him to show you how to participate with him. And then finally, ground your prayers in what God has already done for you through Jesus. Remember, God's not answering your prayers because you pray amazingly. He's answering your prayers because Christ has died in your place to reconcile you to him. And that that gives you lots of space and hope and a place for you to sit your broken heart, your inconsistent heart, your human heart. You can sit it on the grace of God. You can rest and ground your prayers on what Jesus has already done for you. He's already defeated evil. He's already come to forgive you of your sin. He already wants to meet your, your needs. He's already met your biggest need. He is advancing the kingdom. He is, he's already holy. He's already ruling the heavens. He already is your father. Ask him in light of that to actually meet you. And remember what Christ has done is the foundation for everything. So we'll take communion as just an anchor for our prayers and say, God, would you ground my desire communion? It's a declaration that this is all possible because the one who's giving this sermon laid down his life on our behalf. He died in our place in a way to forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to the Father. And this little cup of juice represents his shed blood. This little wafer represents his broken body, which is your hope and is the opportunity you have to bring your heart to him because he's already done all the work. Take a deep breath and receive. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hear again, the message of Christianity is not 
prayed the right prayers and do the right things, and then God would love you. It is Christ already came. God himself already came, died in your place to reconcile you. That's what we're representing in communion. If you're trusting him, maybe today you feel him calling you, uh, you hear him wooing you to himself, and you want to trust him for the first time, and take communion, and let's talk about it afterwards, or what it means to follow after Jesus. If you're not there yet, I'm so thankful you're in the room. There's some prayers in the back of the little bulletin there that should give you some examples of how to pray. Ask for God to speak to you in that space. If you're not a follower of Christian, uh, follower of Jesus, don't, don't take communion with us. T- take Jesus. And if you have taken Jesus, then take communion as the foundation for how we move forward. Let me just pray for us, and then we'll receive the reminder. God, thanks for your mercy and grace. Thanks for your love and your help. Would you actually now fill our hearts with joy as we remember that you accomplished everything you ask us to pray for in this prayer you are already doing? You've made it all possible. You're the center of all of it. And the cross of Jesus is a safe, stable, historic, solid place to engage with you and ask for your help. So so come now in the room. Fill us with faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Thank you.